Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash art of man and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash art of man, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash art of man. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. There are over 100 million books in existence, and the average person only has eight decades in which to read them. So which books should you choose to read over others before you croak? It's a question that's launched scores of lists and many an argument, and my guest today has fired his own 900-plus page missive in the debate. His name is Jim Mustick. He's been in the book business for over 30 years as a bookseller, reviewer, and editor. He's created the ultimate book list in his book, 1,000 Books to Read Before You Die. Today on the show, Jim explains his guiding philosophy on the books he decided to include in his list and how he designed the book to have the feel of browsing through an ideal bookshop. Jim then makes the case for why book lists are helpful but should never be seen as strictly prescriptive. We then dig into the surprising genres of books that Jim included in his list, including science fiction, detective novels, and children's books, and one or two of his very top recommendations in each category. And at the end of our conversation, got a nice treat here, Jim makes a list of books just for the AOM audience of books every man should read before he dies. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash 1000 books. And Jim joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Jim Mustick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Brad. It's really a pleasure to speak with you. So you are, you've had a career in books for a long time. You've been in the business uh, as a, in books as a reviewer, an editor, a bookseller, and you finally got around to writing a book and it's a book about books. So tell us, how did you get to this point where you decided it was time to write a book? It's called a thousand books to read before you die. I, as you mentioned, I've been in the book business my whole life. I started at an independent bookstore in the early 1980s in, in suburban New York. And from that, I had the idea to start my own business in 1986. I started up a catalog called a Common Reader, which was a catalog that we mailed out across the country. Usually it was about 144 pages where I and some other colleagues would write about books. It was very personal. We'd find uh, generally offbeat books or neglected books that weren't on people's radar. And we grew a very nice business doing that. And I did it for about 20 years till at the end of it, we had a mailing list, subscription list of about 250,000 people. And it had lots of the flavors of a book blog or a website, but uh, we had started it before the internet. And so we did it in the mail. And through that experience of writing about books and of interacting with the readers of the catalog who would buy books from us and send us wonderful letters about uh, what they thought of the books, but also recommending other books, my wife and I still have uh, six or eight file cabinets in our basement filled with these letters of people talking about their favorite books. And that got me, you know, writing about books a lot. And so in the early 2000s, Peter Workman, who was the founder of Workman Publishing, which is the publisher of a thousand books to read before you die, he was a great fan of my catalog. And he had published very successfully a book by Patricia Schultz called a thousand places to see before you die, which some of your listeners may be familiar with. And that was very successful. And Peter decided he wanted to do a book like that about books. 
So he asked me to do it. Uh, I worked on it for 14 years. And it was finally published in October. <laughs> I I can tell that it took 14 years. This is, it, it's it's large, and the descriptions are just fantastic. Uh, they're very detailed, and they're just you make they make you want to read the books you you highlight. Um, but I'm I'm curious, like, what was your guiding ethos as you selected these books? Like, why a thousand? That's a it's a large number, but it's not a you know, but it's not it's not like ten thousand, right? Right. So, like, why a thousand? What was your ethos as you went about selecting these books? Well, that's a great question, and it it puzzled me for a long time because i I had been a reader for decades and a bookseller for decades as well. At, by the time I began, and so I had so many books on a list that could potentially be included. The number a thousand came with the project from Workman because they had done a thousand places and they wanted to do a series. So that was kind of my starting point, which I didn't have much negotiating power about, but it seemed okay. But as the more I thought about it, the more complicated it became because I, I would joke with Patricia Schultz, who wrote a thousand places, that conceptually her job was easy because you could just take a map. And the structure of the book would be determined by the map. And any reader of her book would understand that what the structure was, because people are all familiar with maps of the world. But when you're talking about a thousand books, you could take many different approaches to it. You could have the thousand most popular books of all time, the thousand most important books of all time. You could create a canon of classics. You could do it by age of reader. And since books encompass within them all of human knowledge, you have all different kinds of subjects. You could do it by subject if you wanted to, by history, science, and so on. So I had all these books, but organizing them was, was a bit of a puzzle to me until I came upon a quote that really struck me, which was from the great literary critic uh, Edmund Wilson. In one of his books, he talks about the miscellaneous learning of a bookstore unorganized by any larger purpose. And I said to myself, that's what I want. I want readers to open this book. They might be looking for something in particular, but they could really be empowered to browse around and follow their own instincts. So how can I get something that would be fun in that way, that would give the user, the reader, some agency in going through the book? So I said to myself, what if I had a bookstore? I could only have a thousand books. And I wanted to have something for every kind of reading appetite. If somebody walked into this metaphorical store and said, I want a book about ancient Greece, or I'm getting on a plane for a long plane ride, I want a really absorbing thriller, or I want some picture books to share with my kids. I wanted to have something for everyone. So that's kind of how I structured it. And I love that that structure and that, that metaphor, because it really, when you're reading this, it's like you're in like a cool bookstore. And you're just like, oh, I didn't, I wasn't looking for that, but I'm glad I stumbled upon it. And now I'm going to buy this book. Now, what's interesting about book lists, there's, they're all over the internet. We have our own on our site. And every time we've published book lists on our site, it always raises ires of readers because we left out a book or we have the gall to make a normative claim that these are the books you should read. <laughs> have you gotten that with this book or? Yeah, well, welcome to my world, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I write in the introduction something that I, I learned very early as I was working on this book, that once people know you're writing a book called A Thousand Books to Read Before You Die, you can never enjoy a dinner party in quite the same way as you did before, <laughs> because everyone would want to know what's in it. They'd want to know if their favorites are in it. They'd have recommendations and so on. So I I hear you loud and clear. I I get that all the time. But much to my delight, as I've gone around, I spent most of the fall going to bookstores and libraries around the country talking about the book. And all of those conversations have been tremendously fun and polite and generous. And so I've learned a lot. The, the, my listeners and readers have learned a lot. And because everybody's passionate about what they love. So it's a never ending task of adding new books to my own list of things to read, but also for the discussion. And part of what I wanted to share with people was the love of that conversation. 
You know, I mentioned to you before all those letters I used to get from customers of a common reader. And the conversations about a thousand books have been the same thing. People coming, wanting to see if something was in there, arguing in a, in a merry way about their own favorites. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. The first thing I did when I got your book is like, are my favorite books in here? And they were. <laughs> All of them were. It was fantastic. Oh, You've got great. I'm glad. You got great. Yeah, Lonesome Dove. I was happy to see uh-huh. was in there. Uh, the Road was in there. The Great Gatsby. Yes. Very happy to see that. Catch Twenty Two. Um, all my favorites. So I was glad to see those. Those all made the list. But you know, as as a as a, a person who's a reader, a connoisseur of books, like what do you think of book lists? Like, how do you think they're helpful for readers? Well, I think there there are so many books being published every week. And there are so many books that have been published in the past, and there are so many byways in a, in a library or a bookstore that I think lists are very helpful if they are made by, by the maker of the list in a generous way to share knowledge or enthusiasm in a way that's inviting rather than prescriptive. You know, lists can give people the sense that, oh boy, this is a big homework assignment. And I don't like that approach at all. What I like to do is to invite people, here, look at this. I think you'll be interested in this, and to kind of encourage them. The epigraph to my book, let me read it now because it's right on this subject. It's from Virginia Woolf. She had an essay called How Should One Read a Book? And this is what she says, and, and this is the way I feel. The only advice that one person can give another about reading is to take no advice to follow your own instincts, to use your own reason, to come to your own conclusions. If this is agreed between us, then I feel at liberty to put forward a few ideas and suggestions, because you will not allow them to fetter that independence, which is the most important quality that a reader can possess. So what I can do as a longtime bookseller and a knowledgeable reader is to make a list and put in front of people things that they might not be familiar with, or maybe they were a little afraid to, to tackle before. But again, I try to do it in a very encouraging way. You know, the thousand books in my book, it's not a test. I say to people, open the book anywhere, look for your favorites, and then poke around and see what, what suggests itself to you. Yeah, I love that epigraph. And that's kind of how, how I always approach book lists. I never see it as like, oh, this guy's telling me what I should read you know, you bug off guy. Like, it's like, Oh, you know, I, I, I just think, <laughs> exactly. oh, this is interesting. This is this guy's take. Maybe I'll find something new, but there's some people that, man, they, they get really fiery when, <laughs> when they're, they're told this is, this is what you need to read. But I love that, that quote from uh, Virginia Woolf. Well, I mean, let's dig into the, the books you included and the genres you included, because typically when people make book lists, there's like, it's always like the classics or, you know, you know, highbrow, you know, not fiction or nonfiction that people should read, but you've got sci-fi in there. I was, and I was really pleasantly surprised by the number of sci-fi books you have on your list. Why do you think sci-fi often gets the short shrift on book lists? Well, I think when it, when it comes to book lists, even the people making them approach it as a kind of homework, you know, and let's face it, most of us who do these lists are we're English majors at one point or another. So we have this sense of the classic works, which are generally the books that are taught. And sci-fi only recently has been kind of accepted into that conversation. But I believe that that genre works and and are really where people's imaginations flower. You know, not just the writers, but the readers. Because when you get a great work of sci-fi and the author is building a world. It's, it's so full of ideas and interesting things that it far outstrips in terms of mental exercise or mental exhilaration what you might get in a, in a very good literary novel about you know a couple living in Manhattan or something. The, the book can be great, but you're not stretching ideas and kind of in the exact sense in sci-fi, creating worlds for people to explore. And so I love when people expand their kind of spirits by going into sci-fi. You can even do it in, in romance or in children's books where the sense of story is really allowed to take over. Are there any sci-fi books that, you know, just from your, the list, the ones you include in your list that are like good starting points for people who maybe they've always been turned off by sci-fi because they're like, well, that's just sort of 
you know, that was what the nerds read in high school. But I, I, I want to get into like, what would you recommend? That's a good question. I like one. One that really excited me is a book called The Star is My Destination by Alfred Bester. That's one that really got me hooked. And it was written in the 50s. And it's it's essentially a retelling of the Count of Monte Cristo in out of, outer space. There's a lot of revenge and, and someone disappears for years. But it's so fast-paced, people can kind of teleport themselves from one place to another. And it's just exciting. You get caught up in the story. There are ideas there. Many ideas in science fiction turn up, you know, decades later as being new technologies. So that's a good place to start. I I love that one. There's, you know, the classics like Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy or edgier stuff like J.G. Ballard more recently, who writes terrifically absorbing and kind of frightening books that have you on the on the edge of your seat both physically and metaphysically yeah isaac Asimov. that i'm just starting to get into him and what one thing that surprised me about him i didn't know is like how much that guy wrote like he had a tremendous amount of output when i started out in the book business we used to joke this was in the early 80s he was such a polymath that not only did he write science fiction and serious works of science he seemed to have a book on every subject in the bookstore. There'd be a book, you know, in the religion section, in the history section. He wrote about everything. A truly a phenomenally prolific and, and smart writer. And the one that I I think got me into science fiction was Ender's Game. By- ah, yeah, what a great book. I read that when my daughters, my daughters have both grown now in their 20s. But when my elder daughter was reading it, she said to me, you got to read this. And I, I couldn't agree more. What a terrific book. And that must be nice too. One of the nice things about sci-fi is that it can cross generations, mm-hmm. right? Like not only young people like them, but older people can like them as well. So let's move another genre that, uh, that it was included in your list that you often don't see on book lists because again, when people make book lists, they're, they're kind of they try to be snobbish or they think of it as homework. And this genre is often looked down upon as lowbrow and that's crime fiction. Mm-hmm. Why, why does crime fiction you know, get seen, why is it seen as lowbrow? Because when I've read crime fiction, like really good crime fiction, uh, Dashiell Hammett, uh, I mean, the writing's just top notch. So why does it get overlooked and sort of snubbed? I think, you know, for years, people thought that it wasn't engaging serious themes, but it is, to me, there's two, there's two appeals to crime fiction. One is there's just the puzzle of what, what's happening. Another great appeal is atmosphere. You know, Dashiell Hammett's San Francisco or Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles or Sherlock Holmes's London. Those are great places to be in your imagination. So that's part of it too. But I think there's also a lot about how you approach the world. You know, Sherlock Holmes in approaching problem solving or just thinking about things that you eliminate when you eliminate all the uh, impossible things, no matter how extraordinary the answer seems, that's probably it. But also about how to behave under stress. You know, in Hammett and in Chandler, you have people, detectives, who are wandering through murky areas of, of behavior and morality and trying to uphold some kind of personal code that may not be pristine in its virtue, but that it has to work in the real world. And I think that's really important. That's why people like to read uh, about uh, Hammett's detectives or even Jack Reacher uh, in the uh, Lee Child novels or Michael Connelly's Harry Bosch. It's, th- these, are, these are men, they're women detectives as well in the same situation where they're trying to navigate Uh, a world in which the answers aren't clear, that right and wrong aren't always clearly demarcated. And I think people vicariously take some solace from that. Yeah, that's like like real life. Yep. And I I think the other appeal to detective novels is that the detective is like the American version. There's also British and other countries, but it's it's primarily American phenomenon. It's like the American version of like a knight errant, right? He's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, well put. Exactly. He's not a good guy, not a bad guy. Doesn't really work for it. He's on his own, but he's trying to figure out what's good. 
Yeah. Any any uh, books there that you'd recommend people to start off with if they want to get into crime fiction? Well, I was just talking about this last night, and it depends, you know, on your taste. But my own favorites, and I say this because I have a pile of them right outside the bedroom, and there's always one on my nightstand, are the the Rex Stout novels about a detective named Nero Wolf. Now. I don't know if you know those, but he started writing them in the late 30s, and he wrote them all the way into the late 70s. So there's about 40-something of them. And I've read them, several of them, many times. I tend to forget who actually you know, did the crime, but the characters are so wonderful. Nero Wolf, uh, the main character, is this obese man who almost never leaves his house. He lives in this brownstone in Manhattan. He has a, he's a gourmet and he has a cook who lives with him. He keeps orchids on his roof. He has 10,000 plants and he has all of these quirky personal characteristics. But the books are narrated by his assistant, Archie Goodwin, who is much more like a Hammett or a Raymond Chandler detective. So Archie goes out and has all the adventures and then he brings everything back to Wolf, and Wolf, with his genius, figures out the crime. So in these books, you get the pleasures of two kinds of detective fiction. One is like the, the Sherlock Holmes or the Hercule Poirot, where you have this genius figuring stuff out. But you also have the hard-boiled type, where someone is going out and somebody's going out and getting into fist fights and the like. And so there's a great mix of them there. And I just love them. I mean, I, they just, it's, I call it comfort reading. I love it. And I love how you have comfort reading on this list, which is, which is pleasant, right? Because most lists are sort of, be sort of a chore. Well, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do in, in making the book is I really believe, I know this is true of myself. And I know from the many readers I've talked to over the years, it's true of a, of a wide group of readers is that we really, read it's not all seriousness you know we read the way we eat and so one day we may feel like having a very a healthy salad you know granola for breakfast and a salad for lunch but the next day we're walking down the street we're hungry and and we see a hot dog truck and we really feel like having a hot dog and then two nights later we may go out for a very fancy dinner in, in a high-end restaurant all of those meals are satisfying they all speak to hungers that we have and to our appetites. And our appetites as readers are not the same all the time. Just like our appetite for food changes, our appetite for reading does as well. So, you know, you want a couple of bags of potato chips in the, in the list of books as well as uh, nutritious meals. And that's how I've approached my reading. I, like, I belong to a, 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 group, a book group here in town in Tulsa where we're reading the great books. We started at the Iliad. Now we're, we've worked our way. We finished the Divine Comedy, and a lot of those books. Some of them are really a joy to read, enjoyable, like uh, Inferno and Purgatorio. Really fun to read. It's, it's sort of like the beginning of sci-fi or fantasy uh, in Dante. But then I also, but some of them are just sort of a slog. Aquinas, you know, it's yeah. like <laughs> hard. Yeah, the the Inferno always struck me, and I'm sure somebody has already done this, but. If, if you read the Inferno in our day and age, it's almost like you're inside a video game, you know, yeah. where there's all these characters and, and, and you have to navigate through the different levels of hell. It's, it's the same kind of idea. So that's a very good connection that you made. But Aquinas is not like that. Right. Yeah. But then I also read books just for fun. Like, so right now I'm reading, so my favorite novel is Lonesome Dove. I've read it like four times. Right. And I finally decided, okay, it's time I move on. There's other books in the series. So I started with the the beginning in the sequence and now I'm in Comanche Moon. And that's what I do before I go to bed. Just read a few pages. It's for pleasure. It's nothing more than that. I'm not trying to improve my life by reading uh, Larry McMurtry novels. Right. I, it, it, that variety is really important. And I try to get that in the book. And I try to also get books for every age. So you could kind of start with Goodnight Moon and Where the Wild Things Are and go all the way up to, you know, C.S. Lewis as a grief observed. You could really have a kind of cradle to grave reading lifetime. I wanted all of that in the book because, uh, you know, for, for people who have families, uh, reading with, with their kids is really important when they're young. It's important to the kids and it's rewarding to the parents. 
So I wanted to, to point in that direction uh, as well. And to have that se- sense of surprise when, you know, you could go into my book, you look for Mary- Larry McMurtry, and then next to it, there might be something different. I know you mentioned The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Right after that in my book is a wonderful picture book for kids called Make Way for Ducklings. And so, <laughs> you know, that juxtaposition is really uh, what I was after to kind of surprise people a little bit. Yeah, that, that, is a, that is a stark juxtaposition. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means more room for your gear. And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factory Meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time uh, to to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factory Meals, head to factorymeals.com slash manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off. That's code manliness50 at factormeals.com slash manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. 
And now back to the show. I mean, so yeah, you include children's books on the list, and that's another thing you often don't see on book lists. What were some of the the highlights that you that from that list or of genre of children's book that you have on there? Well, there's the one that I particularly like, and it's a book written for aimed at an audience of around twelve year olds, and it's written by a man named Russell Hoban, who H O B A N, and he is fairly singular in the book because, or really among writers, because he's famous for two things at the opposite ends of of the literary spectrum. First, he wrote a marvelous series of picture books for kids about a badger named Francis, a birthday for Francis, best friends for Francis. These books have been around for 30 or 40 years. They're still, they still sell very well, very popular in stores, just about a mischievous little animal and her family uh, trying to to keep her under control and happy. They're marvelous, fun books. Then he wrote another uh, novels for adults, the most famous of which is, is Ridley Walker. And they're kind of speculative fiction in apocalyptic circumstances. But in between those two audiences, he wrote this book, A Mouse and His Child. And this book is about a toy mouse, uh, it's a wind-up toy, a father mouse and a child mouse. And when the toy is wound up, the father mouse lifts up the child mouse and they dance around in a circle. And the book starts, they're happily ensconced in the toy shop, having a wonderful life with all of their toy friends. And then they get sold and they end up out in the cruel world and they have all these kinds of harrowing adventures. And it's a it's a novel. It's about 250 pages. It's a full-length novel. It's a gripping story. It is extraordinarily diverse in its dealing with different themes, even though it's this kind of all of these toys interacting with each other. And I say this quite honestly, uh, and I said this many times on the book tour, this book has as much to say about being alive on the earth as any book I've ever read, whether you're 12 or 60, I, I recommend it to everybody because it's just about how we have to go out into the world and learn to be more res- resourceful and resilient and more imaginative than we might be if if life didn't you know, kind of force us to do that. So it's an extraordinary book. All right, we'll put that on our show notes. So besides fiction, there's a lot of nonfiction. And one genre of nonfiction you have in there is memoirs. Yes. And I've I've read a lot of memoirs and a lot of my read are terrible, but like the ones I've read are really like that are good are really good. And I can't really figure out like what makes the difference. I don't I'm not sure, but like what do you think makes a good memoir a good memoir? Well, the first thing for me is the generally speaking, the person has to write especially well, if it's a memoir. And so the kind of character of the author's mind as it comes through his or her sentences is really important. I think of my favorite memoirs as a terrific memoir of growing up in the West, in in Montana, I think it is, on on sheep farms. Uh, The author's name is Ivan Doig. And uh, he passed away a couple of years ago. But it's about him growing up with his father and his grandmother. They were kind of itinerant ranchers, and they'd go from farm to farm. And from this very hard scrabble life, he went on to take a different direction. He went to university and became a very eloquent writer. And this is his memories of that time. And the quality of, of the writing is, is extraordinary. And so he takes something of, of a very, could be a mundane story, and elevates it by the expansiveness of his own reflections. I think that's, that's really important. Someone writing a memoir has to be thinking about their life and assessing it at the same time as they're repeating it to a reader. So I think that's one quality that I look for. What's another quality you look for? Generally, it's, it's for me, I like finding that quality attached to experiences that are foreign to me completely, like growing up on a sheep farm or in in other memoirs. There's a great memoir by Mary Carr called The Liar's Club 
about growing up in Texas. Uh, I grew up in the New York metropolitan area. So the sense of place and atmosphere and even character in the people that comes from being in a different location, both physically and, and kind of figuratively, is really important. Besides memoir, what other genre of nonfiction did you you have a lot of fun selecting for? Was it like theology or philosophy or architecture? What was a genre that you had a lot of fun picking a book uh, books for? Well, I love books that myself that push us to think about big things like theology and philosophy or mythology as well. And science fiction does this too, but in the nonfiction realm. And I think People like to engage those ideas. They like to find meaning in what, in what they're doing. You know, we're all so busy and we're running around doing all of the activities that, that our life dictates, our jobs and our families and so on. And, and we may be having a terrific time doing all of that. But we also want to enrich that with some sense of a, of a larger sense of being. There's there's a great description in a passage in a book by Norman Mailer where he talks about if you're asked to describe yourself, you can say you are six feet tall and weigh uh, so many pounds and brown eyes and, and so on. But we all have an existence that's separate from the description where we really live in our inner life uh, that we, we kind of see as moving through the world. And books can help us inform that inner life in a way we don't always have a chance to do when we're at the office or wh- however we spend our day. And so books about religion or philosophy, whether or not one believes the, the dogmas being espoused or even the direction of the thinking— it gets us thinking about things, you know, why are we here? What does it mean? How can I how can I put a little more purpose in my life? And people love to do that. They are sometimes they don't know how, and books help them to do it. So I think it's really important. The longest conversation and most important ongoing conversation we have in our lives is the one inside our own heads that we have with ourselves. And so books of any stripe that can give us new words and new ideas to enrich that conversation are, are really important. And the thing I like about books, I mean, a lot of people get their information from social media. The problem with social media I found is that it's other people telling their opinion on things. You can never really, you never have a space where you can just think about the thing on your own. But with a book, it's just you and the author. Yes. You don't have comments coming in saying, you know, hot take, this is what I think. It's none of that. It's just you and the author. And then you really have a chance to think, what do I think about this idea? That's really well said, Brett. Couldn't agree more. One of the things, you know, in addition to the kind of heat and distemper of much of social media is that it's all ephemeral. You know, it's, 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 uh, I, I, I write in the introduction to the book about this. And I talk about what I think of as the great amnesia of our in-the-moment news feeds. Because not only are all of these distractions, first, distracting, second, often toxic, but they go away quickly, and they're replaced by something else. They, they don't last. And one of the marvelous things about a book, and in this it's even different than a movie or music, is that we, as readers, invest a lot of our own time in a book, just as the writer has. And as we invest that time, I think this, this is part of what you were saying, we create space in which our thoughts can kind of you know, stretch their limbs and, and wander into places where they don't normally go. So that element of putting the time in is part of the value that we get from reading, regardless of what the individual book is. And speaking of uh, this ephemeral age we live in, one book that I got from your list that I read, I picked it up, read it in a day. It's a quick read that that really describes this time is uh, Within the Context of No Context by James uh, Trow. 
And it's a weird read. The guy, he's an essayist. He was an essayist for The New Yorker. His style is it's kind of weird. It's, it was different. Yes. But uh, he has these nuggets that when you read it, you're like, wow, this is our current age. This is crazy. And this was written in the 1980s. Exactly. And he's, I'm so glad that you connected with that book because I love that book. And as you say, it's, it's very quirky, uh, but it's short and, and digestible. And he's saying all these things about there being no context for our actions anymore, that the context is being stripped away. And as you say, he's writing about this almost 40 years ago now, and he's talking about television. So I can only imagine what he'd have to say about what we're dealing with now in terms of social media and the like. But it's a very rewarding book. Yeah, one of these points that stuck out to me is that you know television kind of collapsed this middle area of life. You know, you know, social clubs, churches, like you know, where people would sort of socialize, and now there's just like there's broadcast world and there's intimate world, and there's no longer that middle space. And that's why everyone wants to be a celebrity because you get to have an intimate world as well as that broadcast world. And I think it explains like the the whole phenomenon of social media influencers, like. Every kid wants to be a social media influencer because that's pretty much all there is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing how prescient that book is. Well, let's, here's a list that, you know, and what I love about, too about the book is at the end, you have like uh, sub lists. Right. So if you want to do children's books or books to read before you're 12 or uh, mystery books or sci-fi, you have those lists. I'm going to have you make a new list that wasn't there. And this is the Art of Manliness podcast. So let's do like a short, you know, list of books of manly man books every man should read before they die manfully. What would be on your list? I would put on that list The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius by Roman Emperor, great proponent of the Stoic philosophy, but very much someone in the world trying to figure out how to behave, even though he was the emperor. And it's very thoughtful, and it speaks to us now. It almost, you know, reads in a very good way, like a self-help book. You know, here's one quick passage from that. This is from the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Everything you're trying to reach by taking the long way round, you could have right now, this moment. If, if you'd only stop thwarting your own attempts, if you'd only let go of the past, and Anywhere you can lead your life, you can lead a good one. So it, that's a terrific book, which I would really recommend to people. The second one, I already talked about, A Mouse and His Child by Russell Holdband. Whether you have kids or not, if you have kids especially, it'd be a great book to read with them. As I said, it's for about 12-year-olds, maybe 10 if you're reading it aloud together. But this book is filled with very rich life lessons about uh, about coping with with what the world throws at us. So I would add that kind of maybe surprisingly for this list. The next book is a book called uh, Endurance by Alfred Lansing, which is about uh, Ernest Shackleton's uh, remarkable expedition in uh, crossing Antarctica. Um, And it's a very, one, it's a fantastic story. It's thrilling and suspenseful. Two, it is a book about leadership and uh, bravery in remarkably trying circumstances. So I'd recommend that as well. Uh, Third book uh, is a little more offbeat, not well-known, called Independent Spirit by an Irish writer named Hubert Butler. And it's a series of essays. So this is a book you can pick up and put down and just read in 10 or 12 page essays he's a beautiful writer and he lived most of his life uh within an area of 25 miles and he talks about he gets really into his community its history all the way from its archaeology to current farming concerns uh but with a kind of global perspective uh that that makes it not parochial at all, but all about how you make your life where you are, uh, which I think is important. He sounds like a, an Irish Wendell Berry. Yeah, that's a very, that's a great connection. I would put on there uh, the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, which uh, is probably the best book 
written by an American president. Surprisingly, given Grant's reputation, it is a marvelously written book. It's all about his, mostly about his military campaigns and his ability to kind of read a battlefield and read the, the, the mood of a situation is remarkably conveyed. Uh, and, and it's a surprisingly rich book, uh, whether or not you're interested in the Civil War, even more so if you are, of course, but that's a worthwhile book. Also, speaking about U.S. presidents, there's a book about Lyndon Johnson called Master of the Senate by Robert Caro. Now, Caro has been writing Johnson's biography. He's written four volumes. There's a fifth one coming. I think he's been writing it almost as long as Johnson lived. Caro's in his 80s now. But this book is how Johnson rose to power in the Senate and then how he used it in how he both inspired and manipulated everybody around him to pass the legislation he wanted and so on. And it is, it sounds like it would be dry and, and not interesting, but it's, it's just the opposite. It, I found it compelling reading. In Our Time by Ernest Hemingway, which is, was Hemingway's first book. It's a collection of short stories about uh, a young man growing up in Michigan and then going from Michigan and being in World War I. It's kind of elliptical. Uh, it's about being a soldier, part of it. But it's more about someone trying to make sense of difficult experiences as he's having them and stripping away all kind of frippery from his language and his thinking to make it happen. So In Our Time by Hemingway is one I would put there. Uh, another, I'll give you a couple more. One is Zen and the Art of Archery by Eugene Harrigal, which is about learning how to be in the moment. You don't have to be particularly interested in Zen. You don't have to be particularly interested in archery, but it's a book about getting our heads in a place where we can have mastery of experience. It's like if you play golf, for instance, uh, which I don't, but I, I know that you can take a lot of lessons, but if when you're swinging the club, you're thinking about what somebody told you, you're not going to hit a good shot. You have to get beyond thinking about the mechanics of situations. And that's what Zen and the Art of Archery is about. Another book that I would recommend is a book called Adventures on the Wine Route by Kermit Lynch. It's one of my favorite books. And Kermit Lynch, as a young man, decided to that he was going to open this wine shop in Berkeley, California. He really didn't know exactly what he was doing. He didn't know the business, but he taught himself. And this book is about his first trip to France and meeting all the winemakers. He went on, Kermit Lynch went on to become one of the great wine merchants and importers in America because he found all these winemakers, mostly in France, who were passionate about their work, did idiosyncratic things, and he brought them back to America. He was really a forerunner of a lot of, of, a lot of the uh, artisanal movement that we have now, both in wine and in beer. But this is about his discovering all of this as a young man, and it's, it's uh, on the order of follow your dream and uh, figure out how you can make it work, and also have good meals and good wines while you're doing it. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And finally, there's a book. It's a very, very thin little book called The Little Virtues. And it's by a woman named Natalia Ginsburg, who is an Italian writer. And the title essay in this book, it's about raising children and how we need to focus on how we teach them bigger virtues and how to have bigger lives. But the book is really about how the parent or the adult does this by having bigger lives themselves, that you have to have some sense of vocation and of purpose in your life that is making you get up every day with energy and good cheer 
even if it's even if you're in difficult circumstances, because you have the sense of a vocation that you're doing something that's meaningful to you. And if your children or those around you see you modeling that behavior and living in that way, that's the best influence you can give in the world to them and and to yourself. Well, James, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Is there someplace people can go to learn more about your work? Yes. We have a website called 1000booksToread.com, 1000booksToread.com. Not only can they learn more about me and the book, but the whole list is there. Not all the writing that's in the book, because as you know, the book is a thousand pages. It's a lot of writing, but I have the list of books. You get to the site and on the homepage, there's a banner with one question that says, what book should everybody read before they die? And then there's my list and I have a sentence or two about each book and there's three buttons. You can click agree and you can add your comments. You can click a second button that says, life's too short. I don't want to read this one. <laughs> and a third button to add it to a list and build a profile to, so you can keep track of it. But what I really like about this, to get back to kind of where we started with your question about when you make lists on your site, people can add their own books. If there's something not on my list that you love and you want to tell people about, put it on, on our website. Lots of people will see it. I do a newsletter, which you could subscribe to at the website as well, 1000booksToread.com, where we talk about what other people have added to the list. And then I have posts to a lot of other writing that I do that are posted to, to medium.com, uh, just at James Mustick on, on Medium. And you can uh, read a, what I'm reading now and, and what I'm writing now is, is all posted there. Fantastic. So you're, you're keeping the conversation going. About these I'm trying. Yep. <laughs> well, hey, Jim, thanks so much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Well, same for me, Brett. I really appreciate it. I like what you're doing, and I've enjoyed our conversation enormously. My guest there was Jim Mustick. He's the author of the book, 1,000 Books to Read Before You Die. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also, check out the website, 1000booksToread.com, where you can find more additions to the list, as well as create your own list of books to read before you die. And also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash 1000books, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic, as well as a list of books that Jim recommended for the AOM audience. So again, check it out, aom.is slash 1000books. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find all the podcast archives. Got over 490 there now. Also, the thousands of articles written over the years, just about anything, personal finance, fitness, relationships, we got it. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.